Welcome to This Being Human. I'm your host, Abdurrahman Malik. On this podcast from the Aga Khan Museum, I talk to extraordinary people from all over the world whose life, ideas, and art are shaped by Muslim culture. There's a new generation that has a very unique perspective to how they see themselves as young Muslims in the modern world. I am this wide-eyed girl. I'm like, I want it all. I want to experience it all. Everyone has a story. Sometimes you just have to find out what it is. Like the poem that inspires this podcast, The Guest House, by Sufi poet Jalaluddin Rumi, we're talking to people who seek meaning and joy in work and life, regardless of what the day brings. Today, two architects whose work is revitalizing and reimagining Lebanon. I don't know if there's a lot of places like that on earth that can really allow for, I don't know, emotions, imagination, creativity to happen and to be fostered by so many conflicting you know, sentiments, because sometimes we hate, sometimes we love, sometimes uh, we just want to leave and never come back and forget. You can learn a lot about a country through its built environment. Concrete is never just concrete. Tiles are more than tiles. They contain history, commerce, culture. In Lebanon, you can also see the scars of past traumas. The country is still recovering from a 15-year civil war that ended in 1990, not to mention numerous incursions on its borders. More recently, an explosion in Beirut in the summer of 2020 killed over 200 people, injured thousands, and caused immense damage to the city. Lebanon has been through a lot and is actively figuring out how to rebuild. Enter Nicolas Fayed and Charles Katane, the minds behind East Architecture Studio. Their work isn't merely about designing grand buildings. It's thoughtful, considered, and intellectually rigorous with a strong focus on deep research, history, and innovation. That's what made them one of the winners of this year's Aga Khan Award for Architecture. The project that got them the prize was the renovation of the Nehemiah Guest House in Tripoli, Lebanon, a project begun by the renowned Brazilian architect Oscar Nehemiah in 1962. It was part of the Rashid Karami International Fair, which was meant to be a permanent tourist draw for the city. The construction was never finished, and the project was eventually abandoned in 1975 at the outbreak of the Civil War. This particular project was something that Charles and Nicholas had a long-standing personal connection to. Let's hear what Nicholas has to say about that. Well, it's a beautiful story. I believe the first time we visited the site, Charles and I, we were maybe 19 years old. We were at architecture school. And we went on a site visit with an expert in the field of modern heritage and preservation of modern heritage. It was the first time 
for us where we actually witnessed a legitimate piece of modern architecture. It was the first time we were faced with really the striking architectural language that the fair actually was trying to convey. And we came up with, with our own student projects and as a response and as an experience, it was really extremely, I would say, uh, informative uh, and really stayed with us as part of our learning curve. So when we heard about this competition or request for proposal a few years ago that was addressing for the first time the rehabilitation of one of the pavilions. We immediately jumped on the occasion and uh, luckily enough we won that, that competition to rehabilitate one of the pavilions. There's something about Oscar Nehemiah's work which stops you, doesn't it? It forces you to look. You can't take your eyes off it. And part of that is because I always feel that although for us now in 2022, we're looking back on, you know, 80 years of Niermeyer's output, but Niermeyer's work never feels like it's old. You know, in 2022, I see pictures of the incredible work that you've done on the guest house at the fairgrounds in Tripoli, and it feels new. It feels like the future, actually. It doesn't even feel like the now. When I look at it, I'm like, oh, that's something from a future time. So I have to ask both of you, how does Oscar Nehemiah's work make you feel? Well, I'm seduced by his work, and he's known to have been actually a very seductive architect. And, and, and the way he deals with proportions, and the way he deals with materials, Really, the striking linearity of his structures, the relationship of the mass and the void, the relationship of the planar, I would say, geometry that he introduces in every single project is extremely seductive, right? And very, very few architects around the world and through history were able to achieve this, um, really this, this, this attraction that one would have towards a piece of architecture. If you travel the world and look at his work, it's recognizable for that simple reason, I would say. Charles, are you seduced as well? <laughs> it is, um, yes, yeah, seductive architecture, but uh, I'm going to use maybe like uh, Niemeyer's terms to describe his own architecture, like the curve that he very often introduces in his projects is very feminine, actually. And perhaps this is why, like one uh, one eye, one would attract the eye to the curve in a, in a way, the curvature. But that is essentially due to the fact that Niemeyer was using concrete at that time in a way that no one used concrete. And what he was really fond about was the plasticity of concrete, how it could be used to do a straight line and how it could be used to do a curve, a dome, uh, really any kind of shapes. And we see that very clearly at the Rashid Karame International Fair, where you have pavilions that are, you know, absolutely out of this world that looks like, you know, um, a spaceship, a flying saucer, name it. And then suddenly you have these very strict, very rigid shapes like the guest house. And it's really the simplicity of the gesture of his structures that really makes a difference, I would say. 
Did you feel like you were collaborating with Oscar Niermeyer as you began reimagining and developing the guest house? I mean, given your descriptives, it feels like you were dancing. You were dancing with him. You were dancing with his ideas and you were dancing with this incredible building. So I guess the question for me is, were you dancing with Oscar Niermeyer? <laughs> really, what we've done, we've tried to interpret the guest house and to re reveal its uh, DNA in a bit. But we didn't try to really do exactly what Niemeyer would have done, but rather interpret it in our own way, contextualize it today in the 21st century, and also, I mean, adapt it to the new program that it would uh, inhabit. And Nicholas, what was the intent of the original Guesthouse Pavilion as part of this Rashid Karami International Fairground that was being developed in Tripoli. So the, the, the guesthouse in itself is located right off the main entrance, and it was supposed to house the exhibitors of the fair. And it was intentionally designed as an open space around a courtyard where all the public functions would actually happen, such as a lounge, a restaurant, and a reception space. And as an idea, really, it was trying to promote as much as possible this idea of openness, the play, and a very special play with uh, an introversion. So it's a building that is designed as an introverted building that has no windows to the outside whatsoever, but that actually benefits from light that always comes from the top either from a courtyard condition or from a ceiling condition that actually allows for light to penetrate from higher level rather than from the front. It sounds magical, Nicholas. It almost sounds like a modern caravanserai. You know, you, you, you enter into this space and all this life emerges and you're protected from all the, the madness and insanity of the, of the outside. Is that sort of what he was going for? It is, but then yeah. surprisingly, the first time we went on site to actually look at it, it had almost disappeared in the landscape because nature had, to, had taken over the pavilion. All those courtyards were overgrown with vegetation, so there was actually no more light that came into the pavilion when we first received it as really a piece of architecture to intervene on. So it was, the design intent had completely disappeared, right, at that stage, and we had to really bring it back to life. We had to infrastructurally allow for an intervention to happen, so there was a lot of cleaning, there was a lot of, if you'd like, scrapping to bring it back to what it was supposed to be and then to actually intervene on it. Mm. You know, Charles, we hear so much, of course, about Beirut and, and Beirut has an energy and a life and a kind of a cosmopolitan identity that I think is recognized, you know, both in history and it's very confusing, often divided present. But some people are even surprised to hear that there's a Tripoli in Lebanon. Tell us something about this city, and particularly why was this city chosen as the site for this grand project in the 1960s when Oscar Niemeyer was really at the apex of his fame and renown? Why Tripoli, and why did Rashid Karami International Fair, the grounds for that, end up there? At the time, Lebanon was uh, really in its uh, golden ages at all levels, and um during that time, there were like uh, 
major fairs that were growing everywhere in the world. And the Middle East had to have fairs, right? I mean, it was a must. And the Middle East was doing quite, quite well at the time. And in nearby Syria, there was the, I, I think, the Damascus International Fair. And as a response, Lebanon created its uh, own fair in its second biggest city, that is Tripoli, and that actually happens to be the closest to Syria as well. Also, Tripoli was a great uh, location to do that because there was plenty of space. Beirut had already started its urban expansion. It was less the case for Tripoli. And the site that was selected was filled of orange groves. It was agricultural fields. And uh, Oscar Niemeyer was the, uh, at the time, the president was uh, Fouad Shab. They visited the fairgrounds and they delimited the space. And the project was supposed to be even grander than that. It was supposed to be a second city, really, was like developments going all the way to the sea. Wow. Yeah. And when that actually didn't happen, they decided to close it off and to create this large loop, this egg-shaped site, which is, by the way, one million square meter, which is wow. humongous. Yeah. For us as architects, the fairground in itself has always been really a, a playground, I would say, and a source of inspiration, and it will always be. And a lot of this inspiration, quote-unquote, comes from the fact that, you know, derelict structures and ruins are also very seductive. So how do you actually negotiate the actual current state of despair of the site with the injection of an intervention or the injection of the public in a site that has been abandoned for so long. And it's this negotiation that becomes interesting. So when we were selected to actually renovate the guest house, it was a huge challenge to really imagine it as this first pavilion that would draw the public in in a fairground that actually never operated as such, where the public was actually never allowed to get in. So it is a challenge, and it was debated amongst us at the office and with our client and activists, other architects in our immediate circle. So seeing now that the project is successful and that it has been recognized by the Aga Khan Award for Architecture is a huge step in what we are thinking could become an incremental urban regeneration of the site, rather than thinking that there's a total renovation plan from a top-bottom, you know, approach. But at the contrary, thinking that we have planted a seed in the site and that another one would follow, hopefully. You know, both of you are based in a city that is a city of layers upon layers of history, politics, economics, religion. And really, for as long as I've been alive, born in 1975, the year that the Nehemiah Project was abandoned in, in Tripoli, it's been a city that I have always associated with trauma. And most recently, the 2020 explosion 
brought everything that both of you are talking about into sharp relief, the human cost of the devastating explosion, but also against the backdrop of recent history. As architects, as people who are so committed to the built environment and what that means, how was it, I'll start with you, Charles, how was it being in the city you clearly love and have made your home and watching it shook in 2020 in this way? Yeah, I I don't think there's another word uh, that comes into mind than trauma. I mean, it's clearly uh, the case because we've lived it, literally. We were there, we were present, we were close to uh, the epicenter, we got injured, uh, our houses got destroyed, our uh, parents got injured. It was uh, traumatic at so many levels. And then once we you know, that trauma leaves our mind, our personal trauma leaves our mind, and we kind of start looking at the city, then we can start thinking and re-engaging and really making up our mind an understanding of what this whole thing means and meant. So that's, uh, in a nutshell, my first reaction to your question. Did you immediately imagine, as you cleared out of the fog and the haze of those initial few days, Did both of you immediately start to imagine how to rebuild, what it would mean to rebuild? I can only imagine you as architects would go to the tools and the skills that are closest to you. What was happening in your hearts and in your minds as you were viewing this? What did you want to do at that moment? You know, it takes a lot of of thinking and a lot of experimentation to really know where would you go next after such events? And you can actually learn a lot from history because Beirut, as you brilliantly described it, is a city of layers. And what makes it, I would say, special, and if you were to actually go back to history and really understand how the city was built, after several traumatic events, and the port explosion is only one of them, the city got rebuilt. Sometimes it was embraced and welcomed by the citizens and the Beirutis, but sometimes it was a total failure. So the question is, how do you actually learn from the past and how do you learn from these past experiences to actually know where you're going? Under the Ottoman Empire, the city had a very close relationship with its port, and the port was really an integral part of the city. Residents had a direct access to the port and um, the port was lived as a public space. It was a meeting point, it was a social space, and you can actually read all about it. It's, uh, it was a place for collective memory, for beautiful social practices to actually happen in the port. And then when the French mandate came, the total erasure of the Ottoman city, you had the French planner that came in and that uh, really drew if you'd like, a new city on top of the Ottoman city, which happened to actually be successful as a plan, because it actually allowed for a very porous groundscape and a very porous, if you'd like, ground floor, where all the retail would actually happen, where people met, and that actually at the time still allowed for a connection with the port. It was only in the post-war reconstruction project of the early 90s that looked at the reconstruction of the old downtown, right, in the exact same way it was imagined and designed and built by the French mandates, 
that proved to be problematic because it only addressed a portion of the population. It turned out to be a very sterile environment that really relies on consumerism, on, uh, I would say, a capitalistic therapy for all the residents of downtown Beirut that were expelled and expropriated from their properties to actually be replaced by this new uh, ruling class, I would say. And it was trauma, right? It was another, it's one of those traumatic events that really has to do, that that dealt with erasure as a solution to the reconstruction project. So how do we learn from this now that the city has blew out, right? For, let's say, now in modern times, how do you deal with it? How do you learn from these past experiences? How do you recreate the connection? You're up against, as you just talked about, historical forces of change, colonization, of politics and economics that seek to erase. And here you guys are (laughs) building a practice in a city, the ground zero of all these social, political movements and tragedies. And you're trying to almost recover, aren't you? You're trying to recover elements of that past. You've taken on a Herculean task, Charles and Nicholas. You've taken on this massive task. I mean, you must feel the burden of it sometimes. Yeah, um, it's very inspiring as well, you know, because uh, it's so layered and it's so complex that it's quite unique. And I don't know if there's a lot of places like that on Earth that can really allow for, I don't know, emotions, imagination, creativity to happen and to be fostered by so many conflicting you know, sentiments, because sometimes we hate, sometimes we love, sometimes uh, we just want to leave and never come back and forget. Sometimes we want to erase. And I think a lot of Lebanese feel that way. And there's this love-hate relationship with the country that is very unique to Lebanon because of everything that has happened throughout the years. And this is really like a very, very strong fuel for creativity. And I guess it's one of the things that makes us maybe special or makes us want to stay there. There's so much more to talk about always. And I love cities. I also believe that, you know, cities are this remarkable human thing, isn't it? That they kind of live and breathe. I know know there's that theory of cities which sees the city as an organism. But there's also that theory of cities that sees city as a metaphysics almost, right? That sees a city as that place where you can imagine and you can imagine big and vast and beautifully, you know, and then work to make the city of your dreams. Can Beirut become the city of your dreams? Well, as we speak, Beirut is is torn. And it's torn at so many levels. And it's really, as you have described it, a huge challenge for us as architects to really reimagine how the city would actually come back to life. There's very, very little life in Beirut right now for so many reasons, be it an economic meltdown that we're going through, uh, be it a political instability that is, I would say, here to stay for a while. So it's really in the hands of the people. Our government has completely let us down. And it's us as really these little collectives, right, 
that can make a change. And, uh, and I believe a lot of Lebanese and uh, also the Lebanese diaspora living abroad really try to do their best to keep that country afloat, even though there is no government at the moment. And even if there was, I mean, in the past couple of years, it's really the people who have made the change at the ground level, you know, like really people are the main um, actors uh, in, in this country. And let's not forget that it's a tiny country. And uh, that's also what makes it kind of beautiful and uh, at the same time manageable. Like uh, it could be the easiest country to manage uh, from a political standpoint, but <laughs> it is the most difficult one because of all the unfortunate uh, fractions between the different political groups. Before we wrap up, I need to ask this question. I feel like there's, of course, a very deep spirituality in architecture, the belief in the, in, in the spirit that something is operating, you know, beyond bricks and mortar or poured concrete or the lines and the curves around us, that there's something powerful, there's a spirit. And I wonder to what extent your work as, as architects, as conveners of collectives, as imaginers of spaces for now and the future. I wonder to what extent that is a spiritual practice for you. I'll start with you, Charles. The process of, uh, of designing in itself is a very personal, uh, even when we do it uh, collaboratively, it's something that comes from within, really, so that there is maybe a parallelism to be made with like almost something uh, spiritual, right? And the only uh, way to see if a design is successful or not is when the public intervenes and interacts with that space because he, she is the only way to make sure that the message that we were aiming at, you know, convening actually passed. And so the public is so important. Like the, when I say the public, I mean the person interacting with the space that is not a designer is so important to really, he's the judge at the end of the day. He's the judge of our, of our work. And, you know, it would be really, I mean, unfortunate if uh, we would design something and that the reaction would be really opposite to what we would have initially intended. So, yeah, I think it's really, really important that uh, that interaction that you're talking about. Yeah. Mm. Nicholas, is it a spiritual practice for you? Definitely it is. And when, when you think about the really the, the the spiritual practice in relationship to the narrative that you actually allow through the spaces that you design to somehow overlap with experiences that people actually, I would say, feel when they're in the spaces, right? So they come in and they leave their own trace, they create their own narratives. And this is what actually makes somehow your project quite successful right, as an architect, and then it really has to do with collective memory, and this is where you start to relate to the space, right, as a user or as someone who's experiencing the space. So this is it's extremely spiritual, as you're saying. Charles and Nicholas as reimaginers of a different guest house. Who or what would you invite into your guest house? Nicholas. Specifically, if you think about the guest house at the Tripoli Fair, that really the first 
person or maybe group of people, maybe let's put it this way, I would really like to see in the guest house is the Tripolitans, is the people of Tripoli for whom this fairground was actually designed for. We see very little Tripolitans coming in to the fairgrounds, unfortunately. We see very little interest. It's just starting now to really attract just the immediate residents around the fairgrounds. And I really, this is really uh, my wish for the guest house in Tripoli. Mm. And Charles, who are you inviting into your guest house? I would invite Niemeyer to the guest house. Oh, I would love it. I would love it. Wouldn't it be something you and Nicholas and Niemeyer in the guest house? And I would love to hear what, what he would have to say. Thank you, Charles Katane. Thank you, Nicholas Fayad, for being with me on this Being Human. Thank you, Abdelrahman. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to This Being Human. You can see some of Nicholas Fayed and Charles Katane's work by following the link in the show notes. We've also included a link where you can learn more about the Aga Khan Award for Architecture and see the other projects that won this year. This Being Human is produced by Antica Productions in partnership with TVO. Our senior producer is Kevin Sexton. Our associate producer is Haley Choi. Additional editorial support by Lisa Gabriel. Mixing and sound design by Phil Wilson. Original music by Boombox Sound. Stuart Cox is the president of Antica Productions. Sharo Yagtajvidi is TVO's managing editor of digital video and podcasts. Lori Few is the executive for digital at TVO. This Being Human is generously supported by the Aga Khan Museum, one of the world's leading institutions that explores the artistic, intellectual, and scientific heritage of Muslim civilizations around the world. For more information about the museum, go to www.agakhanmuseum.org. The museum wishes to thank Nader and Shabin Muhammad for their philanthropic support to develop and produce This Being Human. Thank you.